Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. So we are, um, I don't quite know how to do this. Now it's all slightly different. Did you come in and felt a bit awkward because of the chairs? I, I did. It actually wasn't my idea, no. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Um, You will know if you've come here uh, for any uh, any length of time. We are going through a series at the moment uh, around the life of David. I think we've called it King David. And um, the kind of the verse that we are kind of, I suppose, hinging our series on is 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, which says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And you'll know that we've talked about uh, how important the heart is to God, how important it is for for people's hearts to be right with God. And really, in the end, if your heart isn't right with God, though God be powerful and though God have universal power, he can do very little in you if your heart isn't for him. If your heart is hardened, there's very little he can do. And um, we've looked at this over a number of weeks. We looked at, right at the beginning, we looked at David and his call into leadership. Uh, We looked at David and his relationship with Goliath and the battle that he had there. Uh, We looked at his relationship with Saul, the end of his life and the beginning of his reign. And um, I think a few weeks ago, Phil would have talked about the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of the Lord. Uh, Today, we come to... Uh, really what is quite a a pivotal passage in the life of David Um, and it really it remains um, I suppose a major lesson that we can learn from but also a major I suppose stain upon his character and his, his, his relationship with Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. There are other two other characters that we will talk about that I will just mention up front, and that is Uriah the Hittite, who we could equally rename Uriah the Righteous, and you'll see why, and Nathan the Prophet. And all of those guys come up in this story. Now, what I'm going to do, which I don't normally do, um, is I'm going to read you the story. I don't know how many of you have ever read the story. Yes, I could go, I'll go and read the story at home, but some of you just may not do that. So I'll read it for us. I'll take a few minutes just to read the story, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then a little bit in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Just imagine it as um, an audio book, yeah? If you've ever done that, audio book. So, I mean, I'm not a great audio reader, but um, just imagine that it's an audio book. So David and Bathsheba. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth, and didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant the right Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, 
David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now just a few verses in chapter two, in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, it shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you before your, very, before your very eyes. I will take your wives and I will give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, grateful for uh, just the truth that we sing each week. We're grateful for the truth represented in the act of communion. We're grateful for your word, which is full of truth. Uh, We're grateful that that truth sets us free. We're grateful that truth brings grace to us. It helps us. It directs us. And so, Lord, I pray that from this story of uh, David and these various people, that we can find truth about you uh, and in ways that help us live this life and understand who you are. Lord, I pray for open hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Up to this point in the story, you could describe David as the model king. 
He, um, you, you know, you, we talked about how he handled himself around Saul with such righteousness, with such integrity. He lived around Saul. Um, once Saul goes and he dies and David, if you like, unites the kingdom, that righteousness, that integrity, that success, that favour continues for David. David is victorious against the Philistines. Once upon a time, the Philistines were this army who the Israelites were frightened of. They're not frightened of them anymore because of David. They whip them almost whenever they like because of David. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, that he reigned over Israel doing what is right, what is just and right for all his people. So the people are blessed because of David. They live good lives because of David. He then shows kindness to the family of Saul. He makes a, a covenant with Jonathan that, you know, Jonathan says, look, if any of my, my family are left, look after them. Don't treat them badly. David promises that he'll do that. And he takes one of uh, Jonathan's sons and he brings him into the household and he looks after him. He leads the people in battle against the Ammonites and the Aramedes. He's the model king. He's the wonderful king that they would have all wanted. And yet, there is this thing about success and favour that is very, very fragile. God is blessing him. God has favour for him. But actually, sometimes you forget that in those very moments of blessing and favour, you must be watchful. And David was not watchful. Success is fragile, and it's fragile simply because we're human. We're human. If you give me too much adulation, after a while, if I am not watchful, I will begin to think differently of myself. I'll begin to think of myself in ways that would not be appropriate. I'll begin to think that uh, maybe I'm not subject to the same laws and rules that other people are. Lots of people get like that, who are very, very successful. So David becomes, becomes a victim of his own success. The passage says to us that in the springtime, so there was a moment every year, I don't quite know how it worked, whether they looked at the clock, oh, it's the 1st of March, now let's go to battle. I don't quite know how it happened. But in the springtime, when kings go out to war, David stayed home. David stayed home. David was where he should not have been. He had stuff to do. Yes, he had a very capable army leader in Joab, but he was meant to be out leading the people in battle. That's his first mistake. Sin can sometimes appear impulsive, but it's not really. It's not really. Decisions are made often that lead us sometimes to acts that seem very impulsive, and that was here. You see, one of the protections against sin is doing the right thing at the right time. Had David stuck with doing the right thing at the right time, being king, leading the people out, he would never have been where he was where things happened with Bathsheba. He should have been leading the army into war, not lying on his bed that evening. But he is lying on his bed and he looks out, I suppose a bit bored, he's just wondering what's going on, he's the king. yeah, And he sees a woman and she's a very beautiful woman. And so there is this reality of temptation. 
It's a reality in our lives that people get tempted. We see things that tempt us. We see things that we covet. We see things that we go, oh, oh. For everyone, it might not be a woman, but it might be something else. But it's the same process that you go through. You see something that you covet. You see something that you want. You see something that you desire. David, your Bathsheba, naked, and he is tempted. He desires her, he covets her, and he sets out to have her. Now, I don't want us to lose the fact that we're talking about David, Bathsheba, this beautiful woman. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. But we can all be like that. We can all see something. We can all desire something, covet something, and set out to get it. It doesn't need to be a woman. It could be a career. It could be a husband. It could, it could be anything. But you have that kind of mindset. You see it. You desire it. You covet it. You set out to get it. That's what David did with um, Bathsheba. David's sin, as we know, was not committed in public. It wasn't like everyone knew what was going on. But it would be exposed publicly. Not just exposed publicly as Nathan tells him, but it's exposed publicly because in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's recorded. David's biggest sin is recorded in the Bible, so every generation reads it. It's exposed publicly. There's a moment in that story where uh, David, having taken Bathsheba, and she sends a message back to the king, something she may never have done prior to this moment, but she sends a message back to the king I am pregnant. You think about those three words. You think about the world in which we live. You think about life. That phrase can sometimes bring for you great joy. I remember when uh, Pauline uh, got pregnant with uh, Yasmin, our eldest. And uh, if you think about how the... I don't know how it works. With, we have loads of babies in the church, don't we? So I don't know... I don't know uh, women, wives, how you tell your husbands, yeah? I don't know whether you put it out on Twitter. I don't, I don't know what you do, yeah? You send a message. You send a banner across the sky. I'm pregnant. I don't know what you do, yeah? Pauline phones me at work. My love. Actually, she wouldn't have said my love. She said, Owen. <laughs> Owen, I'm pregnant. And obviously, at that moment, one of the responses I could have had would have been, could have been joy. Yeah? But the immediate response was, oh, my goodness. I'm not ready to be a father. That was my response. And I came off the phone, and I remember going, so what, is, what do I do? Because in a, I'm becoming a father, and it's not even like I necessarily want to become a father. But it's happening all around me. Sometimes it can be a moment of joy. If you, maybe if you've been trying for a child for years and maybe there have been no children in your family for years and you get pregnant and you have a child, when you say those words, it's a moment of joy. But it can also be a moment of great fear. Let's be honest, not every pregnancy occurs in the way that I've just described. To some, you might go, congratulations. But to someone else, you might go, what are you going to do? It's a very different kind of response. And in this particular case, 
You could argue when Bathsheba lets David know, I am pregnant. This is a, what are you going to do moment. This is not a moment for congratulating the king on his manliness. This is a moment for what are you going to do? It's really interesting that the moment David hears that information, he has a number of options at that point, yeah? But it it almost feels like he doesn't think, he doesn't consider any option. He simply says to Joab, send me Uriah. He doesn't reflect for a moment. He just says, send me Uriah. And so Uriah comes. And what is David doing now? Very interestingly, David is now planning and plotting ways of covering his sin. He's planning it. He's plotting. He's thinking, how do I cover what I have done? He's going to cover his sin. Who would have thought when David didn't go to war in the springtime and he said, Joab, you go, lead the people, lead the men, take them on, do it for me, high five, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he sends him out and he takes some chill time, who would have thought chill time would end up here? Plotting and planning. So Uriah comes back. And uh, we know the story, and it's, it's one of the saddest stories, really. Uriah is there. He is Uriah the Hittite, but you could describe him as Uriah the Righteous because his response to David simply exposes the sin even more. David brings him back. David does his best to try and get Uriah to sleep with his wife, to cover up the fact that he slept with his wife, and she is now pregnant. That's what he's trying to do. And Uriah goes, how can I do that, my father, my lord? How on earth can I respond like that when the men are in the open country? I would never do that to you. You imagine what's David thinking inside? Actually, he's probably hard-hearted at this point. He's not allowing that reality to, to get him. He's like, okay. So what does he do? He writes a note. He gives the note. He writes Uriah's death warrant and Uriah takes his own death warrant back to the army. Awful, awful thing to do. And to be honest, on a human level, David gets away with murder. Because not many people would have known all the facts. And certainly there would have been no one big enough, bold enough, brave enough who knew all the facts who was ever going to report the king. Even if you'd kind of worked out, what is going on here? Even if you'd been one of those messengers, you didn't know all the facts. You didn't know what was going on. David gets away with murder. But the thing he had forgotten, and it was that he had forgotten it rather than he didn't know it, he'd forgotten the Lord. He'd forgotten the eyes of the Lord that roamed throughout the earth. He'd forgotten the fact that God sees everything. He'd forgotten the fact that God doesn't sit, you know, sit around there not looking and then suddenly he turns around and goes, oh, what's been going on? No, God sees everything. It's an uncomfortable truth, isn't it? When you realise God sees everything. You think, oh, hmm, did he really? So he sees everything and it must be that he sees everything because there is no indication here that somebody told Nathan what was going on apart from God. There's nothing to indicate that that there was a rumour going around. But God sees and he's not happy. 
And so he brings his man to account. Humanly speaking, we can think we get away with stuff, can't we? Sometimes I just think I've got, I've got away with it. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I'll never do that again. I'll never, do that. I'll never, I'll never do it again. No, please don't. I think I've got away with it. But God, God sees. And when God sees, the whole world might as well see. I might as well have put it on Twitter. If God sees. So then chapter 12 begins with this. The Lord sends Nathan to David. There's a passage in Proverbs 27 where it says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Nathan is going to David and he's not going to hug him and say, yo, bro, how are you doing? Nathan is going to confront David with his sin. He's going to expose it. He's going to make David feel this big. Yeah? Not because he's trying to, but the reality of that exposure, that's what it's going to do. It's going to make David feel this big. So the Lord sends Nathan and he exposes the sin. He tells him the story. And obviously David, like most of us, has a sense of justice about him when he hears the story about the man and the ewe lamb, the rich man and the poor man, and he he takes his lamb. Oh, he's angry. Oh, how dare he do that? He just hadn't made the connection. Sometimes we, we live almost in our own little bubble of our own world and we don't make the connections. Oh, actually, the very thing I've done here is what he's talking about. Here, David continues as a model leader. Because when he is confronted with his sin, David doesn't try and defend himself. You don't hear David go, oh, do you know what, Nathan, I was going to talk to you. There's, it got all got a bit muddled. I don't know what happened. You know, she was there. Oh, if you'd seen, if you'd been there. No, I have sinned. I have sinned. What a wonderful way to respond. What a model example for us. I have sinned. I'm not trying to defend it. I'm not trying to rationalise it. I'm not trying to explain it away. I'm not trying to avoid it. You, yeah, you caught me. I've sinned. I pray, I pray I don't get into these kind of sins, but I pray if I get into sin, that I'll be open. I'll be soft-hearted enough. Sometimes the biggest problem we have is that we're not soft-hearted enough to acknowledge even when somebody brings it to our attention. Because we think, why would the Lord send Nathan? Why didn't the Lord speak to me directly? If God wasn't happy with me, why did he not boom his voice from heaven and let me know? Yeah, God rarely speaks to us like that. Not saying he doesn't, but rarely. Often it comes from someone, and maybe it comes from someone who you're a little bit irritated by. How dare you tell me what I should do? Often it comes like that, and so half the problem is accepting the means by which it comes. But the truth is it often comes. God often brings it to us. He has a soft heart. I have sinned, he says. And then there's this very interesting, uh, quite powerful statement. And it was really interesting, where it, just the way our worship went this morning, we kind of related. Nathan says almost, it almost sounds like a, um, uh, you know, he's just like passing the time of day. He's just making a comment on the side. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. 
The Lord has taken away your sin. It's not often in the Old Testament. Think about it. Think about the Old Testament. Think about the way sacrifices were made. Think about how they were redeemed from sin. Think about the, uh, the altar and all those things that went on. Nathan does none of that. He simply says, the Lord has taken away your sin. And I, and I kind of dwell on that. The Lord has taken away your sin. He didn't need lots and lots of discussion. I'm sure you can write books on that. But the reality is the Lord has taken away your sin. I don't want to get out of the story, but that is really helpful for us, don't you think? God's taken away your sin. Because you might be sitting here thinking, do you know what? I've been David. I've been Bathsheba. I've done those things. I've sinned. I've sinned and the stain of sin, it still lives with me. I've sinned. The Lord has taken away your sin. Yet, the passage ends with he's taken away your sin, but the consequences of your sin, they're going to still be there, David. The boy's going to die. And today, we would struggle with that. We would struggle with the idea that because of David's sin, this boy dies. We struggle with sin that we don't commit, but maybe is committed against us. The consequences of sin. The consequences of actions. The reason I describe Uriah not just as the Hittite but as the righteous because he exposes David's sin in his response. Uriah is righteous in this story. There's nothing to indicate that he's done wrong. He's, he's one of David's mighty warriors. He's a righteous man. He's, he's fighting for his king and his country. He's out there doing his bit. Yeah? Doing the right thing. Being righteous. But as a result of David's sin, Uriah dies. Uriah dies. That's a bit tricky for us because we like to think, we almost think in our minds, surely, surely God protects the righteous. Surely God keeps those who are good. Surely God won't allow the righteous to be affected by the sins of the wicked. And yet in truth, if you read the Bible, you find that's one of the biggest questions that they have. How is it God allows the righteous to fall with the wicked? The whole book of Habakkuk is all about that. God, how is it that you manage to punish the righteous by the wicked? Why does that happen? Why, don't, why aren't the righteous living great? Why aren't they protected? Why aren't, why aren't the righteous, why isn't things going well for the righteous? Why are, we, why are the righteous suffering? It's one of our biggest theological questions, or personal, one of our biggest pastoral questions. And yet here we have an example right here in the Bible where a righteous man suffers because of the wickedness of another man. He is at the front of the battle fighting the enemy, but his death warrant is being signed in his own bed, and he doesn't know it. And for some of us, it doesn't end in death like it does for Uriah, But we know through our experience, not that we're saying we're perfect, but we know we have been sinned against. 
We have, almost as innocent people, been abused and misused and treated badly. And we struggle. God, why would you allow that? Why would you allow people who are really wicked and awful ride roughshod over people who are righteous? Why would you do that? It's a question that we all ask. It's a question that the Bible asks, that, that the psalmists ask. It's a question that Job kind of asks. Why, why would you allow that? You see, sometimes God's ways are just not like our ways. The way that it works with him is not always the way it works with us. The real issue for us in that is will I allow myself to have my sight of God shifted, distracted because of this. In another way, it's worth thinking about David and this exposure of his sin as being grace to him. David had sinned. David needed something to kind of wake him up. David was becoming too casual. David was not doing the things that he was meant to be doing and he was doing the things he wasn't meant to be doing. So actually the exposure of his sin was grace to him. It might seem odd, but it was grace to him. So just to really summarise with a few questions and a few comments and thoughts. How do you avoid sin? I don't just try really hard. Just try, just try really hard and you might avoid it. We, we know trying hard doesn't help us avoid sin. Yeah? If you're really honest with yourself, yeah, I try really hard. I, I fall back again. And then you feel even more like, oh. Yeah? But one of the ways we know how to avoid sin is here in the story of David because we can see how David got into sin. David got into sin by not doing what he was meant to be doing. David should have been at work when instead he stayed at home. Yeah? When you're meant to be at work, be at work. Because if you're at work, when you're meant to be at work, doing the job that you're meant to do, do you know what? You you haven't got time to sin. Yeah? It's that practical. You don't have time to sin. Yeah? Because you're too busy doing work. Yeah? Don't allow boredom to become a habit. Yeah? Don't allow that. And boredom, in our way, you know, boredom in our life, we use a word, don't we? We use a word, and it's called chill. It's called me time. Yeah? It's called, I just need some time. You know, I'm just like, just going to hang out. I just need to bless me today. Yeah? <laughs> me time, chill time, is another word for boredom, and it's another word for laziness. Yeah? And I do that, yeah? I have to be caught pulled up short for chill time. Oh, I just need to chill this morning, my love. Again, I mean, again. How much chilling can you do? Yeah? But one of the ways to avoid sin is, 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 is don't, don't cover boredom and laziness with other nicer words. Don't do that. Yeah? Don't take time off work that you don't need to take off work. Don't be sick when you're not sick. Do you know what I mean? Don't, don't do those things. Yeah? When you're at work, be at work. 
Because had David been at work, David and Bathsheba wouldn't have happened. Had David been at work, he would have continued to lead the people. Yeah? Had David been at work, some of the things that happened subsequent to this would never have happened to him or to Israel or his family. But because on this occasion, David chooses not to do the thing he was meant to do. So don't do it. My encouragement, don't do it. It's easy to do it, but don't do it. If you're doing well, if things are going well for you, if you are having a successful career, if, you, if things are working out for you, continue to be watchful. Be watchful over your own life. Check it out. Look at it. Make sure that, that God still remains the center point. Make sure your heart's still soft to him. So avoid sin by doing the right things at the right time. Secondly, if somebody who loves you confronts you, and we don't do confrontation, you know what I mean by that, we don't do confrontation, we don't do that here, do we? We're not like up in your face in that kind of way. But if somebody lovingly confronts you or questions you, remember that verse in Psalm 27, blessed are the wounds of a friend. Yeah, because Nathan confronts David and really in the end that is grace to David Yeah, the exposing and the dealing of the sin is grace to David the wounds inflicted by a friend are grace to us if your friend, your sister, your brother your husband, your wife your elder, your pastor, your small group leader if they lovingly confront you the wounds of a friend are good wounds. They're grace to you. And then the other thing that I think we just need to be aware of, and hopefully it makes us think twice about doing what David did or our equivalent of that, the consequences of your sin on others. Yeah? So David's sin, actually, not only does it lead to a baby dying, it leads to Uriah dying Actually, if you look behind it, it leads to all sorts of rubbish in his family. The truth was, and I just say it as a fact, I'm not making any, the truth was that from this moment, it changed for David. Yeah? It changed. Everything changed. Around his family, around, around the people. It was almost like he let something in. The consequences of your, your sin on others. Think about that. Yeah? God, let me think about that. Let me not walk into sin blindly, casually, impulsively. The consequences of sin on us and on others. Other people who are righteous will be harmed because of your sin. That's what this book tells us. This is what this story tells us. The potential of that. And if you're a leader, if you're a manager, if you're a person of authority, even more so you need to think about that. That your sin doesn't cause the sin and the end of others. But in all of this, there is wonderful good news. There is wonderful good news because of the gospel, because of the cross. 
What David was experiencing here when Nathan says to him, almost as an afterthought, your sin has been taken away. The Lord has taken away your sin. Yeah? In a way, what Nathan was saying, he was pointing to the cross. He was pointing ahead to the cross. He may not have seen the cross himself, but he's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to a moment in history. David, you might not understand this, but God's taken away your sin. All that sacrificing, yeah, yeah, we're doing all that, but there is a moment, there will come a moment in the future where there will be one sacrifice, and it will be for all sin. Yeah? He's looking to that moment. Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. Why? Because of the cross. And if you read about that, if you read about the cross, what you realise is it wasn't just a moment in the history which everything forward thinking, everything beyond that changed. Actually, it changed everything before that. The impact of the cross was both ways. The cross was the moment where, where sin was dealt with. The Lord has taken away your sin. And actually, that's a wonderful, thank you, that's a wonderful truth for us. It's a wonderful truth. And I, and I want you to kind of live in that a bit. I don't want you to be fearful of sin. I want us to be aware of it. We need to be aware of this kind of story. But actually, all this story does is it highlights the magnificence of the cross. It highlights the fact that actually Jesus has taken away my sin. And when I talk about sin, you know what I mean. Anything that makes you feel rubbish, anything that that you have done, anything that has been done to you, all those thoughts, those battles, those habits, those the things that you are you feel enslaved by, it's sin. And the Lord has taken away your sin. You need to understand that the work of the cross is that complete. It's not that it's just taken away, you know, oh yeah, there are certain sins that the Bible talks about, you know, I know the lying and stealing. No, it's taken away all your sin, all the rubbish. Sins that have been committed against you like they were against Uriah and against that baby. Actually, the Lord takes away those sins. You think about David for a moment, what David has done. There's a moment where you could think, hmm, I don't really like David very much. How dare you? And yet the passage still tells us the Lord has taken away your sin. He commits adultery. He gets this woman pregnant. He covers up his own sin. He murders her husband. He, he makes no attempt to reconcile or, or, or do anything about it. When he's confronted, he repents. And it says, the Lord has taken away your sin. Most of us haven't done the things that David has done. But that truth remains true for us. The Lord has taken away your sin. And I want you to know that. I want you to, in your heart, go, thank you, Jesus. Because do you know what? That affects how you worship. So when we sing songs, it's not, just for me personally, it's not the beat that does it. Yeah? It's the reality of the truth. That's what does it for me. Yeah? In that sense, I'm very simple. Yeah? Oh, yeah, faultless. Oh, I love it. Yeah? I don't need big, deep truths. I just simple truths will do. I want you to know that. I want you to find grace and joy in simple truth. 
The Lord has taken away your sin. And some of you, that's not yet true. It's not yet true because you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. For some of you, it's not true because of that. And maybe in a moment, well, just 30 seconds, there's an opportunity, I'm going to pray and you can respond to that. But for some of you, it's not true because you're lingering with sin, you're holding on to it. And you haven't been able to deal with sins that have been committed against you, as sins were committed against Uriah. And and Uriah, Uriah ends up dying. And you think, how does that work? Yeah? And and there's no easy answer to that. But God takes away sin. Takes away the stain of it. Takes away the power of it. Takes away all the penalties of it. He does that. He really does. And you can be free. Why don't we stand together? I'm just going to pray. And uh, if you want to talk or chat then you can come out and uh, talk to me but uh, I'm just going to pray and uh, the first I just want to address maybe there are people here who have never given their lives to Jesus they've never accepted him as their lord and their saviour they've never said yes to Jesus they've never put him on the throne of their heart they've never they've never done that they've never acknowledged that before him we're all sinful you're sinful, I'm sinful. If that's you, in a moment when I pray, you might want to say, yes, Lord. And then I'm sure we can talk to you and help you through that, but it's a very personal decision, but it, it has such massive implications. And then there might be others of us here who, are, uh, yeah, we still live with sin. We still live in the consequences of some of the sins that have we have committed or have been committed against us. And we've never quite known how to deal with them. Nathan, simply, the Lord has taken away. And and whereas David, it was prophetic there, looking ahead to the cross, for us it is revealed. We know the cross. We know how he did that. So Father, I, I pray first for any here who might not yet know you or they haven't come to that place of accepting you as their Lord and Saviour and Father I ask even in this moment would there be a yes Lord in their heart and if in your heart you're saying yes Lord then I want to encourage you to come out and talk to somebody come and talk to Phil or come and talk to Pauline if you're saying yes Lord in your heart and maybe it's the first time you've ever really done that Just come out in a moment. And then, Father, I pray for any here who have said yes, Lord, that you are their Lord, you are their saviour. They know you, they love you. Like Uriah, they are righteous before you. And yet, God, they grapple and they battle with sin. Sins that they commit and sins that have been committed against them. Lord, I pray for that simple truth that simple phrase, the Lord has taken away your sin, would become real to them again. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. 
you can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.